one sunny morning in 2013, in the very quiet science fiction section of the Glen Park Public Library in San Francisco, Ross William Ulbrich was arrested for, among other things, being the administrator of Silk Road. Perhaps you've heard about Silk Road, the online drug emporium. It was located on the dark web, meaning you had to use a special browser to access it. As you know, I don't really talk about criminal hackers on the hacker mind. I mean, there are so many positive stories about people who are hacking for a living and doing good things because of it. Why glorify the criminals? I mean, they're criminals, right? Yet, I mention Ross Albrecht because I use him in my talks as an example of operation security or OPSEC failure. Operational security is typically a military process. It was first used during the US Vietnam War in the late 1960s. It's a process of protecting critical information through encryption and being aware for the potential of eavesdropping on conversations. Operation Security, or OPSEC, preserves the effectiveness of military capabilities and keeps potential adversaries from discovering our critical information. Critical information must be protected to ensure the enemy does not gain a significant advantage over our soldiers. The elements of secrecy and surprise are vital to the accomplishment of our missions and the protection of our soldiers. Soldiers, family members, civil servants, and contractors should be aware that the enemy obtains sensitive information from a variety of sources, including casual conversations, publications, and even social media. Maintaining OPSEC is everyone's responsibility. Within InfoSec, there's an informal use of OPSEC as well. It's basic privacy hygiene. And some hackers have done a great job of keeping their private lives private, known only by their online handles or nicknames. The administrator for Silk Road was someone going by the name of Dread Pirate Roberts, a name taken from the movie The Princess Bride. And then it happened. What? Go on. Well, Roberts had grown so rich he wanted to retire. So he took me to his cabin, told me a secret. I am not the Dread Pirate Roberts, he said. My name is Ryan. I inherited the ship from the previous Dread Pirate Roberts, just as you will inherit it from me. The man I inherited from was not the real Dread Pirate Roberts either. His name was Kamaba. The real Roberts has been retired 15 years and living like a king in Patagonia. Thank you. Then he explained that the name was the important thing for inspiring the necessary fear. You see, no one would surrender to the Dread Pirate Wesley. So we sailed ashore, took on an entirely new crew, and he stayed aboard for a while as first mate, all the time calling me Roberts. And once the crew believed, I, he left the ship and I had been Roberts ever since. The use of this nickname was clever. It implied that ownership of Silk Road could be transferred from one person to another. The administrator for the site would always be Dread Pirate Roberts, but different people could assume that identity over time. We know that wasn't the case. Ulbricht was the only DPR. He neither inherited it from others, which was his story to the feds, nor did he hand it off to another person. The feds shut him down. Actually, the real hero of the story wasn't within the FBI. In 2013, we knew only that someone calling themselves Dread Pirate Roberts was running Silk Road. It took the curiosity of an IRS agent named Gary Alford, who had been running some advanced Google searches, to see whether or not Dread Pirate Roberts had ever slipped and revealed something of himself. Sure enough, he had. In 2011, 
There was a user in a chat room going by the name of Altoid, like the mint. Altoid asked a question, and in his post, he mentioned the name Silk Road. Only that site hadn't been launched. So anyone talking about it in 2011 most likely had some inside information. So Alford started his search for other references to this Altoid, and he found some. Apparently Altoid had posted another question to another chat group, but then deleted that original message. However, on the internet, nothing is truly deleted. And sure enough, Google pulled up the response to the now deleted query, and it contained the original message. And in that original message, Altoid had asked if anyone could answer his question to respond to rossolbrick at gmail.com. The slip-up was enough for law enforcement to start to unravel a carefully constructed web of deception around Silk Road. Had it worked, it might have been brilliant. Yet, despite the meticulous care that Russ Albrecht took, invisibility is virtually impossible for anyone to maintain for any length of time. Or is it? In a moment, we'll find out what steps you need to take to be truly anonymous online. And there are a lot of them. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm going to discuss how hard it is to be absolutely invisible online. How there are always breadcrumbs and fingerprints left behind that could potentially identify you. That said, there are some steps that you can take to obfuscate your online presence and to eliminate those breadcrumbs in the first place. And as for staying invisible, well, at some point, it's only human that we sometimes fail. While writing the book, The Art of Invisibility, I challenged my co-author, Kevin Mitnick, to document all the steps that you would need to become invisible online. And there are a lot of them. Kevin, you should know, spent years hiding from the FBI, living under different names in different cities. This was before the commercial internet, when it was easier to forge documents to create new identities. Today, not so easy. So in this episode, it's not really a handbook for criminal hackers or wannabe terrorists. Rather, this is a purely academic exercise. I mean, how hard is it to be invisible online? A lot of the examples in this episode will be from drug lords, if only because they represent the extreme. They need to operate in the shadows. And they also demonstrate my point that we're only human and that at some point we all slip up and fail. A lot of your own personal success or failure with anonymity online will stem from your personal threat model. Everyone is different, and every circumstance is different as well. So privacy, in my opinion, is a sliding scale. I've known people who are very open about their social security numbers. Don't do that. And others who shred and hide as much as they can. So who are you hiding from and why? 
Here, I want to mention that if you're actively being stalked online, or if you're in an abusive personal relationship, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode 30, where Ludrina Cherney and Martin Gruten offer resources available to mitigate those circumstances. And I'm not talking about services that can remove your buddy's Instagram photos where you're tagged doing something not safe for work. Those are reputation services, and basically they help push those images further down in your search results. And in some cases, they can help you get them removed as much as you can remove anything from the internet. Now, what I'm talking about here is about making choices that help you become more anonymous online. Some would argue, why bother? There's already so much out there about me today. But I view internet privacy a little differently. It's like choosing to go organic and to stop and think about the food we're eating every day and where that food comes from. I'm thinking more about the long tail when I choose to do something online. Do I really want this activity to be traced? Am I concerned at all that someone is logging this? And should I be concerned that someone is logging this? In my personal life, I'm not hiding from the law, but I am using DuckDuckGo as my searches aren't logged on that search engine. And as a writer, I make a lot of crazy searches. So it's better that one doesn't keep track of all the places that I go for an article or a book. It's crazy. Additionally, my location is turned off and I only use location when it's absolutely necessary on my phone. I keep my Bluetooth off, and again, only use when absolutely necessary. And I use a VPN that doesn't log my websites. I do this not because I'm hiding, but for a degree of privacy. I know that in the greater scheme that I'm not capable of the due diligence required to be invisible, and I get that. But again, I feel some comfort in knowing that I can control what I can. Again, this is an academic look at all the steps that would be required to become invisible online. In the book, Art of Invisibility, Kevin and I come up with some guiding principles, such as, you need to remove your true IP address. This is your point of connection on the internet, your fingerprint, and it can reveal where you are down to the physical address where you are using a particular device. Which leads us to the second point. Obscure your hardware and software. When you connect to any website online, there's a snapshot of the hardware and software that you are using that is being given to the website. And if someone were to scan or otherwise view that log from your router, they can tell whether or not you're using a desktop, a laptop, a tablet, a mobile device, or a TV, even a refrigerator. They can do so using the Device Media Access Control, or MAC address. That's the hardware. The browser software tells the website what version of the operating system you're using, and sometimes what other software you're running on your desktop or mobile at that time. Finally, attribution is hard, so don't make it easy. What that means is proving that you were at the keyboard when an event occurred is often difficult. However, you can make that attribution so much easier. If you walk in front of a camera before going into that Starbucks, or 
If you bought your latte at Starbucks with your credit card, these actions can all be linked back to you when you go online a few minutes later. So it sounds easy to become anonymous online, right? Just observe those basic rules. Well, it's more complicated than that. A lot more complicated. First, we're really going to have to eliminate any way to trace your activities back to who you are. And for that, you're going to need new equipment. The laptop you have now, the mobile you have in your hand, these are associated with you in a number of different ways. It's complex. And it's impossible to clean these devices. So we're going to start with a clean slate. You're going to need a new laptop and you're going to need a new mobile phone. We'll get to the email addresses and phone numbers in a moment. And it goes without saying that you'll also need tablets and other things if that's important to you. But at a minimum, let's agree that you're going to need a new laptop and a new phone. So how do you go about doing that? Well, you can't order these online, nor can you physically go in and buy these in a store. Wait, why? Well, there are cameras and there are witnesses and you can't just pay with your credit card. That's traceable. So you're going to need cash and up front, you're going to need lots of cash. So let's start with some cash for the moment. This can be from your personal checking account or business account. I mean, it's a withdrawal. It could be for anything. And in a little bit, we'll talk about the need to convert your physical cash into something a bit more private. But for now, cash is good. So laptops are relatively easy to get. A plain laptop in a store can run you about $500 for the basic level. A Chromebook is about $200. Now, a Chromebook, however, is going to require you to log into your Gmail account. And hiding that is a bit beyond the skill level in this episode. So let's agree. Let's just get a plain laptop. Phones are trickier. You'll want what's called a burner phone. These are phones that don't require any long-term contracts and often no personal information at all. You pay for these with cash. Because they don't have a contract, you'll also need to purchase phone cards. Okay, so how do you purchase these? So you'll need to find yourself what's called a cutout. A cutout is simply someone you don't know. You really don't even have a connection to in any way who will do the physical purchasing for you. Say you meet someone in a parking lot or a park and you say, go around the corner and buy this burner phone for me. And then you give them the cash for the transaction and you promise them more when they return. Yes, there's a chance they won't come back. So this could prove to be a very costly first step. Cash is anonymous. It's hard to trace back. And that's the whole point. If you have one cutout getting you a cell phone, then you'll need another cutout to go to the store and buy you a laptop. This is very important. I know that whenever I get a piece of new technology, I'm all excited. I unbox it and I want to power up as soon as I can. Don't. As soon as you turn on the laptop, it will try and connect to your local Wi-Fi. You have now inadvertently associated your nice, clean laptop with your home Wi-Fi. 
One of the pieces of information caught by your Wi-Fi router is your MAC address. This is a string of hexadecimals that uniquely fingerprints your device. It's cool because the first octets are the manufacturer, say Samsung, and the rest then are unique for your particular device. This won't necessarily identify you, say, to the police. These logs are kept on the router itself, physically on the router. But if the police ever suspect you for some reason of a crime, they can use your home Wi-Fi as an identifier to link you to the laptop that was doing some crime online. Well, guess what? You can change that. So remember, each time you go online, to manually change your MAC address. I'm only suggesting you do that if you want to truly be invisible. You don't need to go that far if you're not breaking the law, if you're just hiding. Another caveat, do not power up your burner phone as well. Why? Well, when you power up a phone, it immediately pings the local cell towers. Just as your laptop has your MAC address, your phone has an International Mobile Subscriber Identity, or IMSI. And that is a 24-bit number that uniquely identifies every user. Now your IMSI for your new burner phone is logged and can be later geolocated by looking for traces of it on the cell towers. I realize, too, that this occurs after the fact. I mean, somebody would have to be looking for your specific burner phone, but unlike your home router, this can be done externally. It can become an issue, say, if the police or someone were actively trying to identify you. One of my favorite examples of mobile phone OPSEC failure is that of known Australian drug dealer, Pat Babaro. One afternoon in 2007, a container loaded with the drug ecstasy went missing from a port in Melbourne, Australia. It was worth about half a billion dollars. Babaro, the owner of the container, is said to have reached into his pocket and pulled out one of his 12 burner phones to find out what happened to his shipment. As we will see, Having 12 different burner phones didn't work very well for Babaro. Burner phones, despite what many people might think, are not truly anonymous. Under U.S. law, the IMSIs connected with burner phones are reported just like the registered phones. In other words, law enforcement can use this list to spot burner phones from log files just as easily as registered phones. It wouldn't necessarily identify who owned the burner phone, except patterns of usage might later reveal that. In Australia, law enforcement saw a set of burner phone numbers appear more often than not together with one personal registered phone. See, the problem with Barbaro having so many burner phones available at his disposal was that no matter which phone he used, personal or burner, as long as he stayed in the same exact spot, it would hit the same exact cell towers. So the burner phone would appear next to the registered phone on cell tower logs. It would establish then a solid case against Babaro, particularly if his pattern repeated in other crime locations, which it did. This helped Australian authorities build a strong case and ultimately convict him of orchestrating one of the largest ecstasy shipments in Australia's history.
All right, so pay someone to buy a laptop and pay someone to buy a burner phone, two different people. Do not power either of these on in your home or office. And do not bring your personal mobile wherever you plan to use your burner phone. All that seems like a lot to remember, and it is. And it requires very good hygiene day to day. You almost have to put on your new identity the minute you walk out of your home or office. Problem is, we still haven't really gotten online, have we? All right, so what do we have? We have cash used to buy physical devices. And now we need virtual cash to obtain services online. As I said, cash is good at the start. So you can start with physical gift cards available at the convenience stores. Gift cards such as vanilla Visa cards are a great way to get cash online anonymously. Again, you'll need to find someone, say in a public park or a parking lot, who is willing to go to the store and make that purchase on your behalf. We'll start with a prepaid card. Walk up to a cutout and say, hey, I don't want my girlfriend or my ex-boyfriend to see me, so here's a hundred bucks. Perhaps that person will do that. Now, have another person go in and do the same thing for another hundred bucks and another hundred bucks. Do this a few times. The temptation is there, but do not purchase refillable cards. Here's why. You'll have to provide your real identity per the U.S. Patriot Act. Providing made-up name, made-up birthday, and made-up social security number is against the law, and therefore it is not recommended. So, get instead a plain vanilla Visa card. For that, you're going to pay a small penalty, 3% at the time of purchase. If you're in the EU, in the book, Kevin has some suggestions on how to get your own anonymous gift cards outside of the United States. So we talked about not using your new laptop with your home Wi-Fi. So you'll want to go someplace else. And we talked about your phone connecting to various cell towers. Again, you'll want to go someplace else and leave your personal cell phone behind. So you're going to seek out some free Wi-Fi. In a parking lot of a major store or coffee shop, a word of caution, cameras, anything that's identifiable about you or the car, that's a problem. And if you go into the cafe, well, just don't connect online. Maybe instead sit outside away from the windows or behind the cafe where the dumpsters are. A lot of Wi-Fi signals carry, so you don't want to be on camera, say, at Starbucks. Okay, so once again, we still haven't gotten online. In most cases, when signing up for free Wi-Fi, you might be asked for an email address as you accept their terms and conditions. So you can just fake one like something at something.com. However, some systems are savvy and they might require you to respond from that fake email address. Oops. Another thing you can do is until you get your new anonymous email address is tether your burner phone if that's even possible. Although you might burn through all the phone card data that you have. Okay. So before you go and burn a set of gift cards in order to pay for that new email address service, you probably need to think about your new identity. End to end, how is this identity going to be different from your real identity? Remember Dread Pirate Roberts? You'll want to give your new identity some thought before signing up with your new laptop and burner phone. 
Often, undercover agents will use their real first name and change everything else. Think about that. If I were in a room and somebody shouted, Hey, Robert, I'd probably turn around. It's become habit. So consider that. But with an email address, you can be more creative. So you don't have to do a variation on your own identity. And it isn't a physical representation. So you could change your gender. You could change your ethnicity. You can be creative. Now, remember all those visa cards that you had the cutouts go out and get for you? We're going to use one of them to pay for an email service provider. Well, what about Gmail? It's free. <laughs> well, you don't want to be using Google because you've got to provide a lot of information. And so in the book, Kevin has some really good suggestions for some email alternatives out there. Here's another thing. You're going to need a password to sign up for that email service. So don't use familiar passwords. Seriously, if you want nothing to connect back to you, choose an entirely new set of passwords. In the book, Kevin recommends using a password manager. That way, your new identity has its own set of passwords. So now, each time you use your burner laptop or your burner phone, you have to become that person or that nickname. Here's where it starts to break down. The muscle memory of going into your familiar email address is strong. One slip and you have to start the process over again. That means a new burner phone, a new laptop. So you've really got to be diligent about not using your familiar email and social media. Oh man, you cannot use Instagram. You cannot use TikTok. Or if you do, you need to sign up with your new email address and your new persona. But then again, do not use either the email address or the social media to contact the real you. Really, the whole point of this exercise, the whole point of getting the burner laptop and the burner phone was to distance you from who you really are. Sending an email to yourself or liking a particular post, not a great idea. All right, so now it's time to go online, but you're not going to just go online with your usual browsers. You're going to use a special browser. You're going to use Tor. There's also I2P, but for this discussion, we're going to stick with the Onion Router or Tor. Why use Tor instead of Firefox or Chrome? Right at this moment, if someone attempts to look you up, they will see your real identity, precise location, operating system, all the sites you have visited, the browser you used to surf the web, and so much more information about you and your life, which you probably didn't mean to share with unknown strangers who could easily use this data to exploit you. But not if you're using Tor. Tor browser protects our privacy and identity on the internet. Tor secures your connection with three layers of encryption and passes it through three voluntarily operated servers around the world, which enables us to communicate anonymously over the internet. So to explain this in a bit more detail, you need to use the Tor browser to connect to the first proxy, which then uses the Tor encrypted network to find a second proxy. And that finds a third proxy or what's known as an exit proxy. The proxy could then be in a foreign country, so now, when you use DuckDuckGo to reach out to a web address, that address sees the IP address for the exit proxy 
and not your originating address. And the Tor network periodically refreshes. There have been some stories about law enforcement successfully backing out exit proxies to find the original IP address. But again, this is an academic exercise. We're not trying to evade law enforcement, only to see whether or not someone can be anonymous online. And for the moment, Tor will be sufficient to mask your identity online. Okay, you need a VPN. You want a VPN that doesn't log transactions. There are some, but they're hard to find. Remember those cash cards that your cutouts bought for you? Here's when you buy some cryptocurrency and set up a wallet. Use Tor to set up the wallet. All right, once you've set up your first cryptocurrency wallet, set up a secondary cryptocurrency account. This is yet another obstacle if someone wants to trace back your financial transactions. This is cryptocurrency laundering, and there are some services out there that are known as tumblers. And while it's not impossible to decipher where those transactions on the blockchain came from, it would just take a long time because what tumblers do is they mix a lot of transactions together and artificially create noise. So you have an anonymous laptop, you have a burner phone, you're using open Wi-Fi out of camera range, you have cryptocurrency accounts in your wallet, and you have anonymous email address, and you're using Tor with a VPN. That's a lot to juggle every time you want to go online. Now, if you slip up, say you type in your legitimate email address, or you use an account that you send something to your legitimate email address, or your burner phone to call your own home phone number and check your messages, well, something then under the rules here, you'll need to start over. And I mean start over. Like, you're going to need cash, you're going to need new cutouts, you're going to need new hardware, you're going to need to start over. And in my experience, it seems... People can only keep this charade up only so long. I mean, we're only human. Like Russ Albrick, the drug lord Joaquin Arquivaldo Guzman, a.k.a. El Chapo, made some serious OPSEC errors leading to his rearrest. In this case, El Chapo physically escaped from jail and was on the run in Mexico. And in order to hide from law enforcement, he put layers and layers of security that isolated him from the outside world. He created an air gap as part of his personal communications protocol. If you wanted to contact El Chapo while he was on the run, you sent a text message to a mobile device. That device was not El Chapo's personal BlackBerry, but an intermediary's, a cutout. The cutout would be paid to be on call, so to speak, in various public Wi-Fi locations, say a cafe or a bar. And he or she was available to transcribe any incoming or outgoing messages. This was because El Chapo had this need to keep using his BlackBerry. I mean, he could have used a more anonymous burner phone but this mirror that he set up made this need to keep his BlackBerry work. The mirror part of this operation is that the intermediary would retype all the messages from one device into another. 
where the original message was sent over a cellular network, a text, that could be read by the carrier, the retyped message would be sent to another human cutout, this time via Wi-Fi-enabled tablet. So there was no cellular connection, no cellular record. This was the air gap. A second human, then, would take that Wi-Fi-enabled tablet and transcribe it to yet another cellular phone. So the air gap worked up until Sean Penn, yes, Sean Penn, the actor, announced that he wanted to write a story about El Chapo for Rolling Stone. Not only that, there was the potential for a movie deal. Well, what criminal fugitive doesn't want to have a movie made about his or her life? So, the Mexican authorities found out about this, and as soon as Sean Penn arrived at the airport, he was followed. As much as El Chapo's men did their best to change cars and to make crazy routes toward their ultimate destination, this proved to be sloppy. A physical encounter with someone from the outside? Not a good idea when you've set up such an elaborate means to digitally distance yourself. Long story short, the Mexican police guessed the location of El Chapo and his men just before Penn arrived, so they raided the compound. Sure enough, there was a shootout, and the Mexican authorities rearrested El Chapo. Bottom line is that becoming invisible online requires some hard and fast lifestyle changes. So once you've gone through the expense and labor of setting up your alternative identity, anonymous online presence is going to take a lifestyle change in order for you to maintain it. In other words, if you're expecting an important email as this anonymous presence, then you can't be logging in from your personal computer or your mobile. You'll have to go to Starbucks. You'll have to sit in an alleyway. You'll have to use those burner phones and burner laptops. Similarly, you can't be carrying around your anonymous burner phone alongside your registered phone. So it starts to get really complicated very quickly. And it goes back to what I said earlier about everyone having their own level of personal privacy. What are you really trying to achieve? And why are you doing all of this? So if you're harboring state secrets, well, you're way out of league here. Uh, I'm not talking about that. And I'm thinking maybe there should be a second episode where I do talk about that. Say, how to secure your operating system and other details that can get you even more privacy. But if you can't wait, my book, The Art of Invisibility with Kevin Mitnick from Little Brown and Company, is available wherever books are sold. And it is full of information on how to become invisible online, along with some great stories from Kevin. But for the moment, most of us, though, are not handling state secrets. So what can you take away from this episode? Well, start by using DuckDuckGo and start by using a VPN if you're not already. And use the Tor browser when you've got some sensitive information to access online. And really, have more than one email address and keep them different for different purposes. You know, you could have one email address that's just for spam. You don't need to have your main email address getting all those solicitations. So there are a variety of things that you can take away from this episode and use in your day-to-day -day life. And no, you don't have to be running from the law. You could just be a hacker who wants to have a little more privacy. I mean, who doesn't want a little more privacy? Let's keep this conversation going. 
DM me at Robert Vimosi on Twitter or join me on subreddit or Discord. You can find the deets at hackermine.com. The Hacker Mine is brought to you every two weeks, commercial-free, by For All Secure. For The Hacker Mine, I remain the enigma Robert Vimosi. <laughs> <laughs>